Hey, Lincoln. Hey, guys. Can you hear me? Yeah. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? <laughs> so good to um, so good to see you. Like after all these years, I think um, yeah, it's been a little while. <laughs> we connected out. I mean, you've met um, Stefan and Jono from the I don't think we've, years as we well. haven't met in person. I think we've talked um, over the years for, I guess, for like ten years, probably. Yeah, yeah. It's been a long time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> from time to time. Time to time, yeah. I know. Can't How are wait you all to, doing? Uh, sort of all do a field trip. To, uh, to Utah or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'd, I'd be happy to host you here. It'd be great to see you. That's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, we're doing well. I think, uh, you know, we've got Omicron over here. So, you know, a lot of people that we know have, have sort of just been bunkered down. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, John O and we are just saying earlier, yeah, a couple of our friends as well. Yeah, and and my, my, yeah my mom's in uh, St. George. So she was telling me, she was telling me all, all about how Utah's handling it and how it's just crazy over there. Yeah, it's very different. You know, Utah is a very conservative place, uh, especially compared to Australia. And conservatives tend to uh, value not being told what to do more than not getting sick. It's any state. More sickness, yeah. 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 But it but it doesn't of course discriminate. We have we have very high levels of Omicron here as well. So yeah. just because people don't like to be told what to do doesn't mean that Omicron cares. That's science. That's science. That's right. We're starting to get those protests down the street and you know, Novak Djokovic and you know, all those supporters are just rallying on the streets. So I think the Australian government's <laughs> making some friends but making some enemies as well. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think COVID though is going the way of like Spanish influenza, right? It's starting to. I mean, even a micron is a lot more, you know, moderate. And the evolution of um, viruses is generally that they become less deadly and more more spready, right? So yeah, yeah. My impression is that at this point, Omicron's mainly annoying because it's filling up hospitals, not because it's killing as many people. Mm. And then when you fill up hospitals, then people who really need attention can't get it. And that kills yeah. people. Yeah. So That's right. there, there's definitely some real challenges there. But yeah, I agree. Uh, from an evolutionary perspective, it's a good thing because Omicron's outcompeting more deadly versions of, of COVID. And mm. soon, it, you know, it will probably just have to be something we accept like the cold. Yeah. yeah, and we just got to flatten that curve. But it's been a, great, a sort of silver lining of accelerating all that research into healthcare. Uh, yeah, you know, with MRA and now, like you know, just as the funding is all over. and Long Bio is just us is an amazing place to be right now. We've got a few guys uh, in Australia looking to set up the fund. Uh, one is called the Aging Decelerator, and they're looking at Web three to sort of raise the money to actually invest in these sort of longevity focused research and the billionaires and, and you know with Brian Armstrong jumping on board along with Bezos and I don't know when Elon's going to come around, but hopefully he does. <laughs> You never know. He, never. he he likes to be surprising. Yeah, that's right. I'm not sure whether he's trolling or not. I, I thought his statements on long levity were interesting. I mean, they kind of make sense, you know, like generally you need to wait for thinkers to die before the next kind of generation of thinking can kind of come to the front. <laughs> but I don't know. I couldn't figure out if he was trolling or not. <laughs> I think yeah, he yeah. likes that you don't know for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think that's basically. a real troll. That's a real troll is that you, you just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like you just said, um, birds don't exist as well. He supports that. That's, that's good trolling. He probably doesn't have a firm conviction either way himself, right? Maybe not. And maybe that's why he likes to kind of walk the provocative middle ground so that he can tease out what he wants to be. Yeah, Which is fair, right? Don't we all need to do that to some extent? Exactly. He needs that narrative as well. Just say, you know, it's okay to say we, we want people to live longer and help like indefinitely because of that billionaire mindset, you know, he doesn't want to get that backlash as well that Bezos is getting. So yeah, interesting to see. But um, thank you so much for taking the time, Lincoln. Um, for sure. uh, so this is a, one of our first conversations is a transhuman coin uh, that I'm trying to put together a podcast for as well. And I know, um, you know, from the discussions with Stefan and Jonathan, um, you know, integrating, um, you know, essentially your memes, integrating your philosophy, integrating your movements is sort of the, the article that you wrote back in 2012, 
it sort of triggered our discussions around having this conversation with you. Um, and Jonathan, you know, with that background as well, meaning in person, um, it'd be great to sort of have that discussion around the movement uh, overall. Um, and I, think, I guess talk more about Mormon transhumanism, what your journey has been like so far, and then how do we sort of grow this movement? Uh, in this, I feel like we've turned uh, a new corner around um, with, with Web3 and, and how we're getting the funding to support these sort of things. So we can talk about transhuman coin and some of the things you've been posting as well on Facebook on um, these rebasing DAOs and a lot of things that um, are really exciting right now. Uh, cool. But yeah, Let's I'll do it. Put together a quick agenda there and I'll hit the record button. Um, and uh, yeah, we can go from there. Sounds fun. Awesome. <laughs> uh, I guess, um, yeah, keen to, to can you get a good perspective, Lincoln, on um, your journey so far um, as part of this transhumanist movement, how you started, um, what was your origin story? <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I like to tell people that I, uh, I've pretty much always been a transhumanist, but I didn't know the word until later in life. I was raised by a, um, uh, a man who was a software engineer back before it was popular to be a software engineer. I'm pretty old. And, uh, and my father, of course, is even older, was even older. He's dead now. And, but, you know, I was, I was raised by somebody who loved technology, who loved computers, who shared that with me from, from a young age. And he was also a religious person, as was my mother. They were both Mormons. And for them, science and technology, as they presented it to me, are perfectly compatible with religion. Uh, the kinds of lives that they aspired to live, the kind of life that they taught me to try to live was one where we lived and expressed the virtues that our religion taught and did so in a way that was compatible with the best understandings of science and with the use of technology in our lives. And there just never was something in, in my upbringing that presented some kind of conflict between the two. Of course, there were other people who told me along the way that there were conflicts that needed to be resolved or couldn't be resolved in some cases. You know, people, uh, some Mormons, like some fundamentalist Christians, had problems with evolution theory, for example. And that bothered me. I, I, I you know, I, I spent quite a few years um, trying to figure out why they thought that and, and debating with them. And, and it turns out that debates with fundamentalists, whether they're Mormons or other kinds of fundamentalists, are... Um, often not really productive because they aren't actually debating the issue with you. What they're doing is they're presenting a front to some other set of values that's more important to them, that they feel like they have to defend by rigidly upholding a particular set of dogmatisms. And so you can so debate you something a, like evolution you with them for a evolutionist from like quite a young age. Say again. Were you a theistic evolutionist then from a young age? As in like... Yeah. Some, yeah, okay. For sure. Yeah, I, you know, so I, I was born, just to, to set the context, I was born in 1974. And um, it wasn't, of course, until the 80s when I was, you know, a young person, a teenager, that I really was thinking very hard about those kinds of things. And I, it, and I it posed a lot of questions for me because there were fellow Mormons who were very opposed to it, but I didn't see why they were. And in particular, some people don't know this about Mormonism, um, but, um, well, first of all, let me say Mormonism is a Christian religion. We revere the Bible, we revere Jesus, like, like other Christians do. But we have some, some different theological interpretations than most of mainstream Christianity. And one of those things that's different and, and I think different in an important and powerful way, is that Mormonism teaches that humans can and should evolve into godhood. We emphasize that. And so for me as a young person, I thought, well, if humanity has this destiny that we're supposed to evolve into godhood and become as God is, why couldn't that evolution have started with much simpler organisms and life forms long, long time ago? Why do I have to interpret the creation story of the Bible literally? You know, there's lots of things in the Bible that we interpret figuratively. Why do I have to interpret a 6,000-year creation literally? That just seems silly to me. But, but of course, it doesn't seem silly to everybody. And so, yeah, I, I, I debated it with a lot of people, but I grew up and became increasing. You know, at first, you ask yourself these kinds of questions as a young person when you see, uh, when you see adults and other, you know, authorities in your religion who are strongly opposed to it. You wonder... 
What do they know that I don't know? What do they see that I don't see? But as you get older and you become more comfortable with what you think and the way you see the world, the way you were raised, the way, you know, the way you feel about things, that that fear that they know something you don't kind of subsides because you've talked with them a lot and you realize they don't have some kind of deep persuasive argument that you don't have access to. And you realize, you know what, the science on this just is probably right. And I'm going to go with it. And not only am I going to go with it, I'm going to tell them, listen, why are you afraid of it? It's perfectly consistent with your theology if you look at your theology in this way. And so um, I, I had a lot of conversations like that over the years. But anyway, the question was, you know, how, how did I how did I come into transhumanism? Well, it wasn't it wasn't until um, years later, th this would have been would have been in my 20s. I actually had gone through a faith crisis, became an atheist for a period of time for other reasons besides those that we just talked about. And um, while I was going through my faith crisis, I began to encounter um, various people who were transhumanists, although I didn't know they were at the time. I just knew what, I, what ideas they were talking about. And as I started reading the ideas that they were sharing, I started to, uh, to really enjoy them and find a strong resonance between them and my own thoughts and between them also and things I had hung on to from my childhood and my upbringing that I still really valued and that I hadn't really found expressions for among secular persons. And transhumanists were talking about these things that in, in some ways sounded very Mormon, but of course they weren't religious at all. Lots of them were atheists as I was at that time. And so as I be began encountering these ideas and I started tying some connections and realizing what the network was I was dealing with, I realized what the, what kind of shared identity there was among them. And it came out in various ways. I heard people call themselves singularitarians, of course, too. What a silly name. I can't do that. There's way too many <laughs> syllables. So, and, and plus I'm not really, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I, I have some, Let's just say I would not identify as a singularitarian because I have some concerns with how the reasoning is presented for a technological singularity, some kind of a hard takeoff. I actually am skeptical of it, but, but I think it's a momentous enough hypothesis that we should seriously talk about it. I just don't think it's actually true, but I could be wrong. I just don't think I am, of course. None of us think we're wrong, right? So... Anyway, I'm not a singularitarian, but I did end up identifying as a transhumanist uh, because of the influence of, of people um, that I encountered who, who shared ideas with me that resonated with my own and with my upbringing. And as a consequence of encountering transhumanists, not only did I end up identifying as a transhumanist, but it also, along with some other influences, began to rekindle my theism, my faith in God for reasons that, of course, are, are, are somewhat bizarre for theists, because most theists don't see God the way that Mormons do. Although there's, there are some strong compatibilities between the two. Mormons are in any way absolutely unique. There's a lot of things in common between theists. But there are some strong reasons, unique reasons, why transhumanism speaks very strongly to some Mormons, as it did to me. I realized I had always been a transhumanist, I realized that some of the reasoning that transhumanists used for their worldview reinforced uh, aspects of the faith that I had lost. And over a period of years, I, I grew back into it. And for both uh, logical reasons and for aesthetic reasons that are harder to put into words, they're more like feelings, but the combination of the two, I returned to what I would call, you know, a, a person of faith, a theist again. And um, so at that point in time, I, I was having conversations with a, with a lot of other Mormon philosophers and Mormon technologists about the kinds of ideas that I was discovering and thinking about. And in 2006, 14 of us organized the Mormon Transhumanist Association. Within a few months, we had proposed an affiliation with the World Transhumanist Association, at, um, which later became Humanity Plus. The, the board of directors ac accepted our proposal. We became the first religiously oriented 
um, affiliate of the World Transhumanist Association. And from there, we, you know, we've been advocating for uh, Mormon and Christian and religious transhumanism generally. We've networked with non-Mormon Christians. We've networked with other religious transhumanists who aren't Mormon or Christian. And of course, we've networked with secular transhumanists. And we've done a lot of work now as an association for what, that's like 16, 17 years now. I mean, th th this is ancient day stuff for the transhumanist movement. We were, we were, um, we were not the first religious transhumanist group, but we quickly became the largest. And now the only one that has surpassed us is the younger but faster growing Christian transhumanist association. Um, I'm also one of the founders of that organization. So it's kind of like a friendly competition we have, but, um, uh, yeah, so I'm, I, I identify as both as a Mormon transhumanist, a Christian transhumanist. And if I am talking to people who don't like religion at all, I'm happy just being a transhumanist, too, if I need to be. Uh, that's awesome. Thanks so much, King. Yeah, <laughs> it's quite a journey. And um, yeah, no, that integrated yeah, right. interest. Um, so you mentioned that there's some doctrinal differences. I mean, yeah, I was, I was raised as a Calvinist, so I'm reasonably familiar with um Christianity actually raised as a um, creationist, like 6,000 BC one. Um, so like, you know, once I got through the whole evolution type thing, you know, there was a few kind of questions, but also Calvinism is quite a different um, theology to, you know, other kinds of Christianity. So, so out of interest, um, what is it that um, I, I guess you could say was introduced as part of, Mormonism, because obviously it had its additional kind of doctrine. Um, well, in the 19th century, that was kind of added, you know, or you could say added into the overall kind of Christian message. So, it's, yeah, I guess what are the core things that make it different? Sure. Yeah, I like to tell people that Mormonism is an, is a particularly immersive discipleship of Jesus Christ. And, I, and what I mean by immersive is that in Mormonism, it's not so much a religion about Jesus as it is a religion um, that strives to be the religion of Jesus, to emulate Jesus, to do the things that Jesus did, to take on the identity of Christ with Jesus and do those sorts of things. We take it, we take in, in Mormonism, we take very seriously this idea that we take on ourselves, as Jesus exemplified, the name of Christ. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that we should console people like Jesus did. It means that we should heal people like Jesus did. And ultimately, if you read the Bible, Jesus commands his disciples to raise the dead. And his disciples talk about a day when they will be transfigured from mortality to immortality. And if these are the kinds of things that the disciples of Jesus talked about 2,000 years ago, without the sorts of technological means that we're now more easily able to imagine then why shouldn't we take that even more seriously today than his disciples 2,000 years ago? So um, that's one of the things is that, you know, Mormonism takes very seriously this idea that we should become um, like Jesus, like God. Um, it, Mormonism is also a very philosophically materialist religion. And what I mean by that is that in Mormon theology, God has a body. God is not an ephemeral um, essence or something like that. God, God is not immaterial. In Mormonism, God has a body and God is a community. There's more than one person that forms this community of God. As Joseph Smith described it, um, humanity should become God the same way that all other gods have done before. And he said that's by going from one small, um, from one small capacity to a greater capacity and grace by grace on until we become gods ourselves as Joseph Smith described it quite quite different to kind of enlightenment calvinism different yes. yeah yeah there there are many interpretations of christianity of course which which put a chasm between humanity and god we're different in kind in a lot of ways um god god may be you know without body parts or passions as some christians describe it in mormonism god very definitely has body parts and passions and we do too and and mormonisms take very seriously mormons take very seriously this idea that we are children of god not like not in the same way that i'm a child of my immediate biological mother and father but in a spiritual or maybe if we want to use a secular word a mental or informatic sense perhaps um, we are the children of god 
and we have potential to evolve into godhood if we make the right kinds of choices um, as a community, not just as individuals. This is, it's about all of us together. And in fact, that's another interesting thing about Mormonism compared to some forms of Christianity is it's nearly universalist. Almost everybody goes to heaven in Mormonism. The only exceptions are people who don't want to. Uh, people are judged according to their desires in Mormon theology. Again, so, um, the opposite to Calvinism, which is predestination. And, yeah. The chasm yeah. is that. Yeah. Yeah. So some big differences. Um, and, and so th these ideas that humanity can evolve into godhood, that God, that God is embodied, it's, it's philosophically material, even spirit in Mormonism is in our scriptures. It's, it, it says that spirit is matter. Spirit is, there's no such thing as immaterial matter. It says all spirit is matter. And so this is coming from 200 years ago. What did Joseph Smith have in mind, the founder of Mormonism, have in mind when he wrote that in our scriptures using the voice of God? Um, I don't know for sure what he was thinking, but I like to think that he was just talking about modern information theory, but in a very, you know, <laughs> archaic sense, ways that we had to still um, adapt and improve over time. That's awesome. I love that interpretation as well. Um, you know, me growing up in China, it wasn't sort of, it was a very secular sort of environment, but there was sort of Buddhist elements throughout the sort of the entire population. You know, it's just part of the culture of Confucianism. And when I came to Australia with my parents uh, when I was seven years old, you know, still quite a blank slate. You know, we, we were, went to churches every Sunday, uh, essentially being part of society that way in, in Tasmania, this little island off, uh, off Australia at the bottom left. And, um, you know, I sort of really appreciated the Christian values that were preached because it really did sort of help us integrate, um, you know, with the, with the society there and help me learn English and, you know, being part of that community through song. Um, what was really interesting is that it was part of my journey when I started on my career and sort of thinking about these sort of things again, sort of revisiting as an adult, um, I started to think about, um, you know, the technologies that eventually, like you say, would help us become, you know, almost have godlike features. Because when I was doing my research around the future of AI and, you know, how these brain-computer interfaces were going to convert us into information theory almost, you know, almost converting our stream of consciousnesses, and uh, Stefan has other opinions, into pure information. Um, that, in a sense, if we become part of physics, as in become the, uh, the actually fabric of space-time and the physics itself, and that's something that when I heard um, from... Uh, essentially, uh, this, uh, uh, this is what Stephen Wolfram's thoughts on the Ruliad, right? It's starting to sort of converge again on on the theism side because you know it's it's purely going okay. Well, this is our space of um, I guess physics that we as we know it. Then there's the concepts of the multiverse, and you know what there are other physics out there. And then what is it ties in with this rule yet? Is this all possible rules um, that can that can actually happen? And computation being, you know, a way for time to to be represented in this flow. So there's a sort of a lot of concepts. It's like you know, I started out being sort of um, you know being in a sort of secular environment, got introduced to theism, and then I sort of went back to sort of the secular side when I was sort of looked at scientific uh, aspects of it in, in my careers. And then now I'm just starting to look at okay, how can you be a theist? Uh, how can you be an atheist in a world where there's so much physics that is undiscovered still? Um, and it's it's sort of trying to tie in that narrative. And it's like well. What is it that we want to integrate? Um, and, and I think it was a really interesting journey that you went through, Lincoln. Um, hope you don't mind delving into some of those things that you mentioned um, earlier. So no, absolutely not. I'm I'm happy to talk about anything that interests you. There's nothing off topic or <laughs> off limits awesome. for me. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So one of the first things uh, I noted was um, you know you went through that atheist period. So what was what was the trigger for that journey for you? Well, it, it had built up over years because of various dissonance from various aspects of my religious tradition that I didn't entirely agree with or I had concerns with and um, problems that I saw in the world, predictable things, problem of evil type stuff. But it really came to a head when my father died of cancer when I was in my early 20s. He had had cancer twice before when I was a child and a teenager and then a recurrence of cancer killed him in my early 20s. And I had, I had a great relationship with him. I loved, I loved him a lot. And 
when when things like that happen, it's I think fairly common for most people who believe in God to say, okay, why did somebody I love so much not only have to die, but had to suffer so terribly before dying? You know, <clears throat> is that compatible with a world in which God exists? And I was deeply troubled by that. And of course, that's, this is not a novel problem at all. This is, is a, you know, probably the most common reason for people to become or to remain atheist. So, yeah, for, for a number of years, that, that's where I was. And it, it took various changes in perspective and experiences for, for that to change again. Um, now I, I do believe in God in, in many ways, very similarly to how I believed as a child, but also in some ways very differently. You know, we grow up, we, we, we learn things. And the, the God in which I put my trust is a God that we like, like whom we should become and that motivates me and people around me, my family, many of my friends, to aspire to be better people, to be kinder, more loving, more compassionate, also to be more creative and to be more uh, courageous. These are the kinds of virtues that um, we attribute to the God in which we place our trust and that motivates us to live certain ways. And, you know, you, mo you mentioned a few minutes ago, Peter, that as you encountered some Christian values, you, you, you liked how they influenced you in the community. And I think that's very often true. The real challenge, of course, with religion is that it's such a powerful social technology that that can cut both ways, right? Religion is powerful enough to do very horrible things socially, but it's also powerful enough to bring us together and motivate and inspire us to do wonderful things. Um, religion is social power. So one of, one of the pragmatic reasons that I often share with people that I think they should seriously consider being religious, even if they're atheist, which might sound funny, is because religion needs to be shaped and practiced by people with values that are life affirming and human potential affirming and that are not escapist and nihilistic, that seek to build heaven and divinity and beauty here in this world and not seek to destroy this world and escape to some someplace else where supposedly some God will reward a few people that said the right words and damn all the rest of us to hell. Religion, religion shapes our world in so many powerful ways. We need good you know, life-affirming, world-affirming people to be religious and to, to embrace the power of religion toward good ends. Because if we don't, the fundamentalists who want to destroy our world because they're all looking forward to some other better world, which I don't think exists, um, they'll use that power against us. So I guess just on the, you know, you're talking about the fundamentalists and, and things like that. I guess when I look at... Um, when I look at, say, Christianity, I kind of see, I kind of almost see it like co-branches where you start off with kind of Judaism, which got some splice with, say, Greek thinking, um, you know, in, that, in the first century, which gave us, you know, the first, you could say, New Testament books prior to the Old Testament. You kind of got the first fork where rabbinical Judaism split from Christianity, kind of in the first, second century after, you know, the sacking of Jerusalem and things like that. Um, and then um, the next one being the kind of the Trinity with, with the Council of Nicaea, where they decided, okay, we're going to ditch Arianism, which kind of led to a fork, you could say, with what became Islam in the future. Um, then, you know, with the, uh, I guess you could say, with the Reformation, Luther, Calvin, you started getting that split between works versus, as you're saying, the more kind of, no, God is really this universal thing. And so for you to do good works and for it to matter would be taking away from the nature of what God is. So therefore, what you do is irrelevant. 
and so in some ways, yeah, there is kind of a nihilist element in, I would say, Calvinism as an example. Um, you know, and, and that in many ways, I think, led to the death of um, Christianity and the Protestant society. Um, because I would say, the ref, you know, the, the fundamentals of the Reformation was very logic heavy and nihilistic, I would say. Um, and then obviously with uh, Mormonism, it's uh, more interesting because you kind of had, you could say, a new prophet um, come in with new thinking. Uh, now, obviously, you know, um, yeah, new thinking, um, you know, new allegory. Um, personally, like I, I kind of see these things as allegory and I'm more interested in the, the fundamentals, as you're saying, in terms of how it drives people's lives as a, as a kind of social technology. Um, but one of the, I guess, one of the aspects that can make that difficult is that each fork in the co-branch isn't like software in the sense that if you're building software, you do a fork, you're still going to be doing new releases. And you might do a co-merge, you might merge some branches together and whatnot. But the dogma of a lot of, you could say, organised religion is in many ways, it's if you treat it as like a mimetic organism, it's very self-protective, which means, you know, people are indoctrinated that their dogma is the correct dogma and it's been infallible for the last 2,000 years. You're like, nothing can change. And the issue with that, of course, is that with the kind of massive amount of technology change that we have, the social technology that made sense in the first century doesn't make sense in the 20th century. And there's only so much reinterpretation you can do. What, what I mean by that is, so I went to an Anglican service with my, my parents a few years ago, and, you know, it's 90 minutes long or something. There was only one reference to the Bible, which is just like God is love or something like that. Because, to be honest, if you read the Bible, you'd be like, what the heck? God is, you read the Old Testament, God is basically telling you to go ethnically cleanse, um, you know, Palestine. Um, and he will he will get angry with you if you don't kill enough people, which is kind of no longer, you could say, no longer part of the social technology we would be wanting to, um, you know, to get people to adapt, right? So how do you get around that? Because what I mean is if you take Christianity, it does still, for better or worse, say we've got these books that, you know, some Greeks agreed on in the Roman Empire in the first, second, third century, Right. They came up with the list. This is the list. Um, hasn't changed, really. Yes, you've had different doctrines for reinterpretation of things. Hasn't really changed since, apart from in the case of, say, Mormonism, which obviously everyone else sees as heresy. Um, but, but how do you get around that problem of each, say, Christianity, we have an infallible book that can't change? Um, because the only way I can see getting around that is simply to reinterpret the Bible essentially out of existence. I mean, keeping little bits of allegory, and I liked what I liked what you were saying around the New Testament and, and looking at what Jesus did as opposed to, um, you know, some of the other aspects of what's written in even the New Testament. Um, but how do you get around that? Yeah, so one of the theological innovations of Mormonism that I value highly is the idea that we always need more prophets and more scripture, that the work of God is never finished, that God never stops speaking. God didn't stop speaking when the various oral traditions were compiled into the Hebrew Bible. God didn't stop speaking when the evangelists wrote their gospels and Paul wrote his epistles. God didn't stop speaking when Joseph Smith compiled his revelations into the Doctrine and Covenants and gave us the Book of Mormon, and God isn't stopping today. And Mormonism, like Christianity and Judaism before it, is not the end of God's work. And I think I think that's really interesting, because I'd say it's one of the few branches of Christianity that has that thinking. I would, say, I would say a lot of it is down to the Roman Empire trying to consolidate on a doctrine. But what that led to is just, it cannot change. This is the doctrine. And so, yes, you had a lot of conflicts around what the doctrine was, but that was all about interpretation of what had already been as opposed to, say, new prophets or new thinking. Um, yeah, agreed. Um, the, the influence of Greek philosophy and Roman politics on Christianity is hard to overestimate. It, 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 
the influence is pervasive. And that's not an entirely bad thing. You know, Christianity has adapted in major ways for 2000 years to the science of its day in important mm -hmm. ways. That's why it became so influential. And that's why it did all of the good things it did in addition to whatever bad things it has done. So when I say that it's been deeply influenced by Greek philosophy and Roman governance and politics, um, I'm not saying that as merely a criticism. I'm saying that is that's just the truth that and, it, it absolutely was. Yeah, definitely. And in software terms, that'd be technical debt. You know, there's just so much sort of things that in the past it's happened in the influences. But, but it's not just technical debt. It's it's your dev community and whoever's running the master branch not wanting to change anything. Exactly. And, you know, to sort of bring the sort of analogy to something that's happening in the crypto space now, like Bitcoin maximalism. Um, sorry to sort of try to pivot and uh, steer all the conversation towards it, but... And, and also reflecting what you've said earlier, Lincoln, and really apologize for, for what happened in the past. And, you know, like we have these challenges of faith because of these sort of things, but, you know, our sort of dedication to, you know, what we think is the mission and the movement really does bring us all back to it. Um, but yeah, things like, uh, you know, I think we've, we've worked with Celeste as well at the Christian Transhumanist and some sort of like great work you're doing as well with that community. Um, so connecting up with the movement. Um, but yeah, with, with Bitcoin maximalism, I mean, it does feel like it's a religion. I mean, they've got their own sort of city now in uh, El Salvador, Bitcoin city, and, you know, that legal tender over there. It does feel like, you know, this is this is the start of the Vatican for Bitcoin. What are your sort yeah. of thoughts around that? Those two concepts of the religion and the technology side being integrated. Yeah, sure. Um, I I like to define religion in terms of function as any practice that provokes a communal strenuous mood. And as such, there are many things that aren't nominally religions, which still function as religion. Uh, for example, there um, people sometimes criticize transhumanism for being a religion. And my response to them when they do that is, I say there are some secular transhumanists who are functionally religious about transhumanism and some who aren't. It can be both. But yes, for sure, some transhumanists get what is functionally religion from transhumanism. And I think that's a good thing, personally. Um, the same kind of thing happens with lots of other domains of human culture. And as you've observed, the, the cryptocurrency um, space is not devoid of this phenomenon. Uh, the, the, the Bitcoin enthusiasts love Bitcoin and everything else is evil and they're, they're out to fight the, the good fight to conquer the darkness that's surrounding them. And, and, you know, to some extent, there's something good about that because I, I value the work that they do at Bitcoin. And if they're motivated uh, deeply to make it successful and to evangelize it, I think that that's generally a good thing for the cryptocurrency ecosystem. And more importantly, I think that's generally a good thing for what we're evolving into with potentialities in decentralized governance and other forms of, of socioculture cultural advances that will arise from these technologies. So I'm, I'm not opposed to, to these new functional religions forming. Now, sometimes they annoy me because I, you know, sometimes they're just wrong about some of their dogmas, right? As all religions can be and often are. But, but you're right. Uh, often it does function as religion and, I, and I'm generally okay with that. It's almost like the same things happening with the fundamentalist, yeah. And then you have people that want to continue to iterate and hear the continued voice of God and trying to sort of iterate and get that contemporaneous approach with these altcoins. And Ethereum, I think, is one of the sort of first movers, first forks that Stefan sort of mentions of sort of the, the Bitcoin religion because, you know, it does people like Vitalik, you know, talking about integrate your ideologies, Vitalik is also, I think, a transhumanist at heart around longevity and also bringing the ability for the, the Bitcoin network to eventually iterate through Ethereum. So um, I guess, yeah, like I think from how did you get into cryptocurrencies? What are your thoughts on, you know, the future of, you know, this decentralized future around, you know, using cryptocurrencies as a way to accelerate um, some of the transhumanism as a movement as well? Sure. The uh, Mormon Transhumanist Association has a number of people who were involved very early in the cryptocurrency uh, space. We started talking about Bitcoin in our discussion groups in like, I don't know, 2012 or so. And several of us started 
participating in Bitcoin at that point. And then, you know, things things became increasingly interesting when Ethereum, as you already mentioned, kind of poked its head out and said, hey, look what this can be, look what this can do. And I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of what Ethereum has done and also what the many copycats, if you will, of Ethereum have done. I think it's great. I, I think it's like a Cambrian explosion of, of decentralized finance and governance evolution. We're seeing new, new ideas, new um, abstract organisms coming into being, procreating, some surviving, some dying, new generations forming. And, and I think that in the long run, this is going to be a wonderful thing for the future of humanity. Of course, there's pain along the way. That's how evolution always works. But I, I'm very optimistic about the, about the end results. I, as I alluded to a few minutes ago, you know, it, it's, it's interesting and important that cryptocurrency starts as a revolution in finance. But that's not where it will end, assuming that the financial part succeeds. And I believe it will. I think, frankly, I think it already has. I, I, I would be shocked at this point if cryptocurrency were to die. It's just, it's too, it's too integrated into too much anymore for it to just disappear. That would, that would be like saying the internet was going to die in 1996 or 97. No, done deal. It was part of humanity. At, by that point. And I think we're like getting close to that, if not already there with cryptocurrency. But it's also not the end of the story. I think that if you really want to change the way that people organize themselves and cooperate with each other and engage in building communities for the better, it's not enough to have pretty ideas. It's not enough to go out there and say, hey, listen to me, I'm, I'm smart and I'm logical and I can tell you a better way to live. That works to some extent, but I'll tell you what really motivates people. Not fancy speaking, economics motivates people. If you fundamentally change the way that human economics works, you will open up new ways of cognizing the world, new ways of perceiving the world that were not practically possible before. And that's what we're doing with decentralized finance and cryptocurrency is we are rearranging the economic structure of the world and we're opening up new cognitive possibilities as a consequence and when that happens we will have the opportunity to change how we govern ourselves how we relate with each other and how we organize our world and i think that there's strong reason to believe that as we decentralize power that naturally increases the incentive for cooperation and if you take that to its limits, the incentivization for cooperation to its limits, it becomes practically indistinguishable from compassion. Yeah. So I think that fundamentally, we need to decentralize economic power in order to create a far more compassionate world. And I think that this is, this is of course, highly compatible with the best angels of transhumanism. Tran the best angels of transhumanism, of course, are not just about changing our bodies to be better but about changing our relationships and our world to be better for those better bodies, mm -hmm. for those better brains and minds to live in. Because we know we're not, most of us know, most of us aren't stupid enough to think that all that matters is me. All that matters is my body and my brain. No, we, we are so integrated with each other. We, that's just how it has to be. So we have to figure out ways to live with each other in better ways, more, more in kinder ways, more constructive ways, more cooperative ways, ultimately more compassionate and more loving ways, I believe. And I think that what we're seeing with the creation of decentralized technologies and the economic incentives being driven into them is a major, major step in that direction. That's so great to hear, like, and, you know, and, and, you know, the super well-being pillar of transhumanism, exactly what you're talking to, you know, the Maslow hierarchy of needs is not enough just to, you know, try to make yourself happy. You need to also self-actualize and then help others self-transcend uh, beyond for others. And I think that really helps others sort of achieve that sense of purpose and mission to bring real meaning to their lives. 
Um, so, and also that empowerment with economic incentives. Um, these sort of things we're trying to do, you know, with transhuman coin, because we, we looked at the community and we said, how do we empower them to find an economic incentive to opt in to this movement, this philosophy, this ideology? Um, and I think, you know, we've done, I think with Africa as a sort of example, the, the crypto first, but, you know, a lot of them are still very sort of yeah, in a religious sense. So we're trying to integrate the ideologies there as well with transhumanism and cryptocurrency. Like I think this Venn diagram of all these things that people will be interested in. Um, but yeah, that's that's really great to hear. I'm not sure Jonathan um, had some thoughts there. Oh, that, no, I, I, just, I, I agree with you 100%. I think that uh, fine, if there's financial benefits um, and they and uh, people can see them, um, it, it see it changing their lives, just like I think within, uh, within uh, Mormonism or Christianity, um, a lot of times there, people need a little bit of an incentive. And so like uh, with Christianity or Mormonism, a lot of times um, they, the belief is that as I, as I live a better life, I receive more blessings from God. And, um, and I, I believe that it's um, even with uh, things like, like a transhuman coin or other, other cryptos as, as, as things like proof of, uh, as, as I do more work, as I, as I deliver something more, I will get a benefit from that. And as I create more community within within a, a cryptocurrency, or as I create more use cases, I can I can also receive more benefit um, in, in that regard as well. And I think through that, I mean, people people I guess it's sort of a way of evangelizing uh, the, the message uh, through for the currency. And it's interesting that um, historically there's been a lot of figures in the transhumanist movement involved in the sort of cryptocurrency and the technologies like Hal Finney with Bitcoin and Vitalik and then <clears throat> with Pulse Chain and Hex, you know, with Richard Hart making that donation, to, uh, managing essentially affecting that $27 million don donation to the Sounds Foundation. Um, I think there's sort of a lot, almost like a natural affiliation of transhumanists and the early adopters of technology um, to eventually get there as well. And now with Brian Armstrong and, and the um, the New Mint, essentially, that um, initiatives, I think we're going to find a lot of opportunity for cryptocurrency to make a huge impact for the good um, in, in this research, whether it's longevity and the transhumanism. Um, have you ever thought about whether Mormon transhumanists would look to try to empower their communities with uh, some uh, token to help, for, for, um, I guess, accelerate that movement as well? Yeah, there have been discussions along those lines. We've We've considered modifying the Mormon Transhumanist Association to be governed by a DAO. Um, we haven't done that. We've talked about it. Maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. We've talked about uh, creating various other um, blockchain um, implementations for various other purposes. For example, uh, you know, one of the one of the things you do when you're sitting around and talking with with people that you have deep ideological commonalities with is sometimes you speculate wildly together. And one of the things that I've speculated wildly on with, with some of my friends is how could we use blockchain to create what the scriptures, um, what Mormon scripture calls a celestial community where everybody mm -hmm. has what they need and more. And, you know, maybe something like along the lines of a universal basic income, how could we implement that? on a blockchain. And so, yeah, the, the, the speculations, of course, happen regularly. They're fun. Uh, but at a certain point, of course, it, it's more important. To, well, I don't, I don't know if it's more important. Speculation, actually, I think is important because that's where the creativity comes from. But it's equally important that you do something about it with your best ideas. And Mormon transhumanists uh, act um, pretty frequently on good ideas. We we build we build businesses. We build we build um, other organizations. We help others build other organizations. We we engage in conferences and advocacy. And so yeah, at, at some point it wouldn't surprise me at all if you if you see um, something uh, on the blockchain related to to Mormon transhumanism explicitly. But I'll tell you this already implicitly there are a lot of Mormon transhumanists that are involved in blockchain projects already and our worldview is influencing that. Uh, How big is the uh, Mormon transhuman um, organization? There's about a thousand members now, uh, varying degrees of, of um, 
publicly identifying as such and, and engaging in it. Um, you know, some, some people just kind of passively identify as it, maybe participate in a discussion here. There are others, of course, are very enthusiastic and, and outspoken about it. But yeah, there's about a thousand. And then the um, Christian Transhumanist Association passed us up in size, I want to say a year or two ago. And I think it's at around maybe 2,000 members now. I've lost track of the membership on that. I serve on the board for both organizations at this point, but I'm not in the management of either organization. Other people manage both of them, and I, I serve most, mostly as an advisor at this point. Yeah, you do have a terrific team. And I know Kennedy from the U.S. Transhumanist Party is singing praises for your ability to the organizations to be able to execute on those ideas with the team and logistics. So it's like, you know, compared to the USTP, you guys are, you know, have your, <laughs> your game on most of the time on that. Um, and also well, sometimes yeah. we also sometimes we also know best the problems of our own organizations. So <laughs> when he says that he's thinking of all the headaches he has had, we've had our fair share, too. We just don't publish them like he doesn't publish all of his. <laughs> he's so diplomatic. I love it. He's very <laughs> transparent in the things he does. But um, also I wanted to mention, um, yeah, the collaborations. I'm, I'm really open to sort of having that collaboration, whether it's with Transhuman Coin or Transhumanism Australia with the guys up here, uh, with the Mormon Transhumanists or the Christian Transhumanists, um, you know, because, you know, we've been working with the guys like, um, you know, Ben Goetz or like Singularity Net um, and Proof of Humanity, which is implementing a UBI based on the peer-to-peer -peer validations of unique humans on the blockchain, on the Ethereum blockchain. Um, and also we want to work with Chris Hoskins and Cardano, who also is a proponent of longevity as well. So there's a lot of sort of, I guess, transhumanists uh, in that sense in the in the crypto ecosystem. And I think integrating our ideologies um, and working together on those initiatives is a fantastic way for us to accelerate that movement. But, um, yeah, if you have some Yeah, ideas. for sure. Transhumanists generally, I just find them to be inspiring people. Like, I, I love to look at what they're doing because almost always they're they're like, thinking about and working on something cool, something that motivates me too. And I, of course, I can't do everything alone. Much as I might like to try to do everything alone, I can't. And, and you know that that's okay because we've got a lot of people working on lots of cool things and, and that's what will shape the future is lots of good people working together and lots of different skill sets, lots of different perspectives, but still some commonality in the most important goals. Yeah, that's that's what we're really awesome about. It's like united behind that mission. Um, you know, like looking at the the chat groups that we have for the transhuman coin guys. You know, sure you have this sort of extremely diverse twenty one thousand type of people. There are probably only two thousand that are online. You know, really like looking into the chat that they're um, actively sort of saying, how do we accelerate transhumanism because we want transhuman coin to do well. Or there's transhumanists that are saying, oh, how do we make this cryptocurrency do well? And how do we accelerate crypto adoption, um, whether it's in Nigeria with the government sort of, you know, quite taking quite a, a defensive stance against it. Um, they're coming out with their own central bank digital currencies. Um, how do we educate sort of the politicians, the community at large about, you know, what, what good can crypto bring to the world? Um, I, I guess a question on this, though. Um I, you know, I, I completely agree on, you know, transhumanists are inspiring. And I think the essence of what transhumanism is, is about, you know, getting beyond like our current physical selves and getting beyond that is great. But in terms of making the overall movement mainstream, I mean, obviously, with, you know, there was the World Transhumanist Association. They rebranded to Humanity Plus. In Australia, like there's different political parties, but the one for, for more innovative, stuff is called the future party the only thing in my mind is just whether or not the word transhumanist um can go mainstream or whether you need kind of an associated brand um for driving it i mean yeah because naming is quite important i forget like joseph smith when he founded his first city he gave it a name i forget what the name was but i'm not sure if that name would have worked out like and then you know they moved and to salt lake city which I think is quite a cool name. But, um, <laughs> but like, what I mean is, like, naming things is quite important. Yeah. And it's yeah. not that I'm saying, that, you know, I think transhumanist, what it is and the essence of it is a good name. But then if you're wanting something to go more mainstream, I'm just wondering if there needs to be another name. So my, my position on this is that we don't need or maybe we don't even want 
everyone to be a transhumanist for the same reason that I don't need or want everybody to be a Mormon. What I do need and want is for certain ideas to influence and shape where we're going together. And I don't think that transhumanists or Mormons can influence the future of humanity in ways that they're best at if they try if they're too worried about watering themselves down to mainstream themselves i think that there's something valuable about us being a little bit different mm. standing for something in a little bit more provocative way a little bit more thought-provoking way and so um i i'm happy that there are lots of people who are functionally transhumanist without actually calling themselves transhumanist and i'm happy that there's some of us who say I'm a transhumanist. Look at me. That's what I am. And I think that both of those are important. And same goes for Mormonism. I'm, I'm glad that there's lots of people in the world who like Mormons. There are people who hate Mormons, too. I, I, I do my best to try to change that. But, but frankly, there's a few Mormons I don't like, so I get it. But um, I, at the same time, I, I like that there, are that there are Mormons out there who are standing for our principles, our worldview, and saying we have something important to contribute. But, for example, in Mormon scripture, it, it's, it suggests that Mormons should be like salt. If all you have is salt, nobody wants to eat it. But if you spread the salt around, it makes for a great meal. And so um, I think that that's, that's the calling that I aspire to. I, I want to fill my role well do what I'm good at, and I want other people to do the same thing in their very important different roles. I want them to understand their roles, fill them well, be happy doing that, and I think working together in those different ways, we can make humanity better. Yeah, no, that's awesome. <laughs> I guess um, I'm conscious of time, Lincoln. Have you got um, just the last couple of minutes, uh, just to maybe some quick uh, fun questions around, uh, I guess, in science fiction, you see, you know, the Mormons come, come to play quite often, uh, for example, in The Expanse and um, they're building out the ship of Nauvoo. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what are your thoughts on, uh, yeah, the future of uh, Mormon transhumanists making that actually happen? Well, so if they had actually talked to Mormon transhumanists when they made The Expanse, it would have been way cooler. But, I'm glad they realized that Mormons are going to still be around because we will still be around. We're tenacious. We'll be there. And yes, we probably will be trying to build things like Generation Starships. Who knows? But one thing they didn't quite get right is Mormons aren't pushovers. We like to fight for things when people start being mean to us. And we would have fought back a little bit more than they showed in The Expanse. In The Expanse, they like basically said, you stole my spaceship. Oh, no. And then they go away. Um, that's more, real Mormons won't do that. Real Mormons will be after you if you steal that's our spaceship. That's true. And that's then true. when you say you're sorry, we'll forgive you, but not until that point. <laughs> but you give the spaceship back. <laughs> no, um, so, but yeah, I, I love the fact that, that Mormons appear in science fiction often. I, and I don't even, and, and it doesn't bug me that sometimes we're portrayed in silly ways. That's okay. I like that we're there. I like that people understand that we're part of the, we're, we're going to be part of the future. And I like that they depict us as part uh, of A it. podcast I was listening to yesterday reckoned that Joseph Smith would have been a science fiction writer. Um, if there you go. In the 20th century. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. anyway. Well, it, I mean, if you look at Mormonism with an open mind, I would suggest that Mormon theology is science fiction. And I, I don't mean to disparage it by saying that. Mormon theology is about possibilities that are not yet realized for us, thus fictional. Yeah. And we need to do something to achieve them. And Mormon theology sets itself up in so many great ways to be consistent with, if we choose to allow it to be, which many Mormons do, consistent with science and technologies. There's, you know, Battlestar Galactica is another uh, sci-fi world that was deeply influenced by Mormonism. The original um, creator of Battlestar Galactica was a Mormon, right. and um, the the kind of the cosmology of Battlestar Galactica is, Galactica is thoroughly influenced by Mormon theology. And you mentioned the Expanse. There's tons of others too where Mormonism has played a role in science fiction, and I think that's not accidental. I think that there's a lot of a lot in common between Mormon theology and science fiction. Yep. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and it's a really great guiding star to make that positive future reality. So, you know, I really appreciate that we had this conversation, Lincoln. Um, you know, I'm looking forward to our collaborations and, and to our next discussion. Uh, and Jonathan, Stefan, thanks for joining as well. Um, no, it's been, it's been great to actually have a chat to you. I mean, yeah, yeah what, 10 years since I think I read your um, Integrate Your Ideology um, uh, article. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you for reading it. And thank you. Thank you for the friendship that you have all extended to me for so long. I, I genuinely appreciate that. Sometimes people can be turned off by differences, particularly religious differences. And um, none of you ever has done that toward me. You, you've all been open minded and kind and and graceful and embracing and accepting. And, and I, I've valued that. So I, I thank you, all three of you, Jonathan, Stefan and, and Peter for, for that over the years. Thank you so much, Lincoln. Thank you. Thank you. Until the next time. Great. And uh, I'll I'll send you a copy of the recording, and you know you can let me know if you need to if you want to cut anything out or anything like that. But um, I yeah, I doubt I'll want to, but whatever you want, I'm I'm sure. I'm happy to share it when you share it with me. Well, great. And thank you so much. I'll uh, put it on YouTube and I'll add to the podcast. I'll send you the link. Cool. Awesome. Thank Look you. Thanks so much, guys. Okay. Talk to you guys later. Have a great day. See you. Bye. Bye. -bye.